Amen. You all can be seated. Thank you, brothers, for uh, playing for us tonight. You have a handout, uh, I hope, in your hand with an unusual title, Holy and Profane, Clean and Unclean, The Complicated Categories of Old Testament Living. Now, I have on the board an alternate title uh, that's sort of a hook title, It says, unholy and okay, sometimes, in the Old Testament at least, yes, it's true. And uh, and I'll say right off the bat, part of our difficulty in understanding a statement like that, how can you be unholy and okay before God, is that we're thinking in New Testament terms. But the Old Testament had a different category of things intended to train people in uh, the knowledge of the Lord. So why am I talking about this topic tonight? It doesn't seem like it flows naturally out of 1 Samuel or out of Pastor Ed's lessons or anything like that. Actually, the occasion for it is what we were talking about last Sunday morning, last Lord's Day when we were in uh, 1 Samuel 20, verse 26, where Saul was trying to figure out why David wasn't at the New Moon Festival, the, the banquet they were having, which was a religious festival. And Saul's thought was, it must be an accident. Surely he's unclean. He, surely he's unclean. He must have accidentally have become unclean and therefore ineligible to sit with them at that banquet. And I mentioned last week that perhaps I would take a side study and, and talk about this issue of uncleanness because it is, it is completely different than anything we are familiar with in our Christian experience. Um, we think of cleanness in terms of bathing. <laughs> uh, we, we might think of cleanness in terms of moral terms, uh, but it is a different, that's not really the way that the Old Testament uses these words. There are actually a lot of other stories in the Bible where this is an issue, and sometimes it is an upfront issue where this is the main thing that's driving an action. Um, in Numbers chapter 9, we'll look at it, I won't read all 14 of these verses, but in Numbers 9, there's a story about the children of Israel. They're in the wilderness, uh, and it is time for them to observe Passover. This is their first Passover observance since they came out of Egypt. You know, they had the original Passover, and now it's time to observe it. And uh, chapter 9, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness in Sinai in the first month of the second year afterward they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at twilight you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes. And so Moses tells them uh, that they need to do this, and that here's the particular day. But verse 6, There were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron that day. These men said to him, though we are, are unclean because of the dead person, we, why are we restrained from presenting offering to the Lord at its appointed time before the sons of Israel? And Moses says, let me ask of the Lord. So what's happened is they had a relative who died, and they had to bury him or her, but the effect of that, now they have to do it, that's the right thing to do, it's the godly thing to do, but the ritual effect is they are now regarded as unclean. And according to the rules of cleanness, they cannot participate in a holy festival. But they want to be at the festival. 
This is the, the first time we've had Passover since we got out of Egypt. We want to, can't we do it? And so the Lord, Moses asks of the Lord, and the Lord grants them a dispensation. He allows them to observe it the next month. And this sets a pattern where there are, there are exceptions made at times while still honoring the intention of the law. So there's a story early on in the, in the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. Um, you, you have heard of the, how Leviticus 13 gives laws about someone who has leprosy. And, and leprosy, by the way, in the Old Testament is, is usually not Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease, which is the nickname for that today, leprosy, is where you start to lose uh, body parts. Uh, that was a very rare in the Old Testament, but the skin disorders that are spoken of could be things as simple as large rashes. Um, so it's not just you know, some uh, wasting disease. It could be something far more common. But someone who has been officially designated as having a skin disease, it might be contagious or not, but they have to, whenever they're in public, they have to cover their upper lip and say, unclean, unclean, so that everyone knows them. You know, you, you, they have to interact with other people. They have family members. They have to interact with one another. But you try to pace, you know, how much contact you have because if you are a clean person and you touch an unclean person, now you are unclean at least for a day. So um, this law is often repeated when we, by preachers when they uh, tell of Jesus' interactions with lepers and how that uh, they lived, had to live apart. Th there's an apocryphal story. I won't have you look it up because you can't, uh, because I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't have the, the kind of Bible in your lap that has Tobit chapter 2, verse 9. But it's, it's a valuable Jewish story, and I, that's why I referred to it. It's a, this comes written probably during the time of the Old and New Testament. Tobit is supposedly a, a godly Jew who's been taken away to Nineveh during the Assyrian captivity. And what he's doing, oh, by the way, did I, I didn't give you your first blank, did I? Passover is the first one there. Uh, and what, what Tobit has been doing, he's been burying dead Jews. So, you know, this is a time of oppression during the captivity. And sometimes, kind of like if you think about the days of Nazi Germany, where they would sometimes just kill captive Jews. The same thing with the Assyrians. So he wanted to give them an honorable burial. And, but but he, he wasn't really allowed to do that, so he would sneak around to do it. But um, the problem is, though, every time he buries a corpse, he is unclean. And so Tobit chapter 2, verse 9, talks about how he went home after secretly burying some people, and so that his wife would not become unclean, he slept outside because the uncleanness would pass after he performed a ritual the next, uh, uh, the next morning. Um, you know the story in Luke 2.22, Mary, after she's given birth to Jesus, she returns to the temple. How many days is it that she has to wait before her period of purification is over? Do you remember? How many days is it after giving uh, birth to a boy? It's 40 days. So you give birth to a child, a male child, 40 days later, there are rituals you perform. You are no longer considered unclean. For weeks, the, new, the mother with her newborn is regarded as an unclean person. Now, is she especially evil because she had a child? No, no, but 
Um, and the, it's long been debated, why would the law say that a woman giving birth, which, you know, being fruitful and multiplying, is fulfilling God's command? And yet you fulfill God's command, and in the process you become unclean. And it may be, and this is a theological question, but it may be that this symbolic ritual is reinforcing the notion that, yes, we are in one sense, doing what we were made to do, but as we bring new ones into the world, we're also bringing new sinners into the world. And it might be that that is the symbolic lesson of that. Now, of course, the difference is with Jesus, he wasn't a sinner. Um, this, is, there, this does raise a question, by the way, uh, that the law never addresses, and that is if the mother is unclean for a month or more, is her infant who's nursing from her unclean? And the law never says anything about it. In fact, it suggests that it isn't. Because, uh, you remember, a, a boy is brought um, uh, before the, uh, the tabernacle or wherever he can go to do this, he, to be circumcised on the eighth day and is presented to the Lord. Well, you don't do that with an unclean thing or an unclean person. So there seems to be some suggestion that the child is exempted from that. So here are some stories where this issue is up front. Uh, and, and then there's some behind-the-scenes stories, like in Mark chapter 5. There's the woman who's had the issue of blood, a, fl a flow of blood, probably menstrual blood, for 12 years. So in addition to the pain and discomfort and the inability to get a physical cure for this, she has to live separately from everybody because she is perpetually unclean, according to the ritual law. She is, one of the words that's used uh, to describe them is unclean. Again, she might bathe as much as she wants, but in terms of the ritual, symbolic observance, she's considered to be unclean. Um, now, if you flip over to the inside of your handout, why is this an important thing? Well, for one thing, the topic of cleanness, uncleanness, is not something very well understood by Christians because when we think of holy and clean, we think of them as the same thing. In fact, if I were to ask you, give me some other words for holy, it's likely that somewhere in the group someone would pop up the word clean. You might even pop up the word righteous, which technically is not a synonym either. Uh, we tend to think of unholy and unclean as the same thing, but they aren't in the Old Testament law. Now, we would agree I think most Christians would agree that there are some gray areas, you know, that there are some things where there's debates, is this, is this right or wrong? But generally speaking, we view life with two categories. There's right and wrong. There's holy and unholy. There's clean and unclean. There's righteous and unrighteous. That's generally how, using the New Testament, this is how we see the world. Yeah, maybe some gray areas in between, but... In the Old Testament, the law given to Israel establishes a system with three categories. Three categories uh, for their system of life. There is the category of holy, and then there is clean, and then there is unclean. And there are synonyms for all of these. Now, I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus is such an interesting book. It is probably the least preached book of the entire, well, I don't know, of the, all the Old Testament, certainly one of the most, 
one of the least preached. Uh, it's so distinctive because the, the entire book was revealed in one month's time, and most of it is verbatim from the mouth of God. Mo God speaking to Moses about the way that not just the Levites, but in particular the priests are to function, and then the nation as well. So back up with me, Leviticus 10, verse 8. The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, uh, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. So there's two groups of things there, and they're not synonymous. There's the difference between things that are holy and things that are profane. Or if you have a, anybody have an English Standard Bible, an ESV with them tonight? If you have an ESV, this is the way it reads in verse 10, to make a distinction between the holy and the common. The common. And between the unclean and the clean. And then the duty of the priest is to teach the Israelites what is holy, what is common, what is clean, and what is unclean. Um, what follows in Leviticus 11 through chapter 15 is, what's, uh, is the key portion that gives the longest list of things that are clean and unclean. There's not as much focus on what's holy and unholy as it is on clean and unclean. This is the portion that says you can eat this animal but not that animal. Uh, this is the portion that says if this happens to you, you're unclean until nightfall. If this happens to you, you're unclean for two weeks. If this happens to you, you're, if you give birth, you're unclean for so many weeks. And when it, there is a ritual, in almost every case, there's a ritual you go through to move from being unclean to being clean. So the key distinctions to make, as I've been saying, is that holy is not necessarily the same thing as clean. Uh, let's put it another way. You could be clean in the eyes of the Lord, but not holy. All right? Now, that's hard for us to think of, but you could be clean, but not the same thing as holy. Someone who is clean might not be considered holy. Let, let me ask you, uh, if you, if you have a Jewish priest here, and a Jewish layman, which one of them would you say is the holy man? The priest. He is regarded by the law as holy. The common man is a common man. Doesn't mean he's bad, but in comparison with him, he is unholy. Now, he might become evil. In fact, the priest could be evil <laughs> in some other ways, too. Uh, so, but all, all things considered... Um, <laughs> All things considered holy are supposed to be clean, uh, but a common thing might be clean or unclean. Now, you see there's a chart there uh, in, in color on the bottom of that page, and so here's the three main categories. You've got holy, clean, and unclean, and underneath that I put some related terms. So holy is the same thing as being set apart. It's the same thing as being sanctified, holy. Uh, clean is things that are common. Um, so let's pretend for a moment that um, this is the temple. Uh, all of the furniture in here would be considered holy. 
even though these tables came from Costco. <laughs> Same table at your house is just common. Same table at some house of ill repute, unclean. It's the usage that determines how, it is, how it's regarded. Uh, so holy is set apart and sanctified. Clean, another word for that, uh, it, that which is common. Uh, or even the word profane. You know, it used to be in English, profane just meant not holy. Uh, it didn't necessarily mean bad. Nowadays, when we say something is profane, we mean it's evil. Uh, profanity, for instance. Um, Another word related to clean is cleansed. That which is cleansed has been made clean. And then over on the far side, unclean, well, these are things that are polluted, they are defiled, they are contaminated. Now, I'm going to flip the, the board over, and um, there's a couple charts here. These are not in your outline. I'll start over, I'll start here on the right side. Uh, you could say that when the Israelite viewed the world through the lens of the Old Testament, everything was either holy or unholy. But the unholy things might not be bad. The unholy thing might be clean. Or it might be unclean, which would be bad. Another term for this is common. Common things might be clean. They might be unclean. They might be, you might think of it as profane, whether it's clean or unclean. Um, so, these two things are closely related. These two things are also related because in the law, it is okay for clean things to be in contact with holy things. It's okay for a common Jew to talk with a priest. No problem. It's okay for a common worshiper to go to the tabernacle, the holy place. That's fine. Now, they can only go so far because there are degrees of holiness, right? But... Um, Unclean things, though, cannot be in contact with that which is holy. And that's why David was thought to be, have been unclean and he couldn't participate in the holy festival. Um, I, I've got a, a chart over here on the left side, and this is some circles. So let's think of some things that are, that are holy. Let's, uh, let's take the tabernacle. I'm going to abbreviate it. The tabernacle, that's a holy thing. But... A common thing would be, say, the camp of Israel. You know, when the Israelites are going through the wilderness and they're all encamped together, that's a common place. Uh, but outside, uh, outside the camp uh, is where, uh, that's where the Gentiles are and the pagans are and the worshipers of false gods. Um, here's, a, here's another way that this works. So the priests are regarded in a special way as holy, whereas the laymen, I'll use that word, are regarded as common, whereas the Gentiles are often, not always, but often considered unclean, mostly because they're engaged in idolatry. Um, how about, uh, how about uh, let's, let's talk about animals. Sacrificial animals are holy. You bring the bull to the altar, it's holy. You take that same bull and slaughter it at home and have a barbecue, it's common. That's food. You're out in the field and you find a dead cow, that's unclean. 
dead animals, that is animals that die on their own. Animals that sacrificed are holy. Animals that are butchered are clean. Animals that are found dead are unclean. It's a very different way of thinking about life. It's a bit complicated. Are you a bit confused at this point? Yes, and the ancient Israelite was too often. <laughs> and that's why the, the, the priests were tasked with teaching them what was clean and unclean, what was holy and what was profane. And it got even more complicated as the centuries went on and as the Jewish uh, community spread across the world and there were no priests anymore. And uh, so highly regarded rabbis would be entrusted with the rabbi so-and-so. Here is this new vegetable. Is it clean or unclean? I don't know why I always give them a New York accent, but anyway. Uh, um, and so highly regarded people, they would try to make some determination, well, based on whatever, I think that's clean or that's unclean. Now, notice, please, and I'll come out of the, this chart now, notice that I'm not using the words like righteous or evil to describe these things because it's not really the same category. You could be a profane person, a common person, and be very righteous. Um, you could be a holy priest in terms of ritual, but be evil. In fact, that's one thing that the prophets thunder against. People who are, supposed to, who are holy in one sense are evil in another sense. Uh, so, you know, a, a person could be unholy in one sense, but still righteous if outwardly and inwardly they are clean. Um, all right, uh, turn over to the third page with me. And um, I, I hinted at this before. Complicating all of this discussion is the fact that there are degrees of holiness. That There are some things that are holier than other things. Isn't that true? I mean, now in one sense... All of Israel was considered as holy. Leviticus 11.45, you shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So all of Israel, in one sense, was holy. And yet, again, as I said before, if you take uh, Joe Schmo, and that's not a, that's actually might be a Jewish name, uh, and put him next to Next to a priest, the priest is the holy man. He is the common man. So there's a degree of holiness there. So the, kind of this chart of, you know, these three things, the, the chart might, what you put in the chart might be different depending on the topic you're discussing. Uh, so you as a common person might in one, one time be in the holy chart. Um, the tabernacle was a holy place for sure. The whole thing was holy. But when you went into the first chamber, the enclosed chamber that only the priest could go into, what was that place called? That's called the holy place. And behind that is another curtain, and that's called the holy of holies, which means the most holy place. Degrees of holiness. And only those with certain degrees of holiness could interact with those things. Um, and... Uh, well, the great problem, the great challenge that Israelites had is that there was a tendency for things to slide down in the system. Things that were holy to become profaned when they should not be and then even become unclean. And you could move from one category to the other through a number of different ways. It, I mean, the worst way was to slide from one category to the other because of iniquity. That is, some transgression, some violating of the law. Um, 
willful transgression or neglect. And so a, a priest could, def, could, de, um, uh, could profane himself and defile himself, which are two different things, by the way. To, to uh, profane yourself is to go from being holy to common. To defile yourself is to go from being clean to unclean. So with one sin, you could go whoop, whoop, down two steps. And to reverse that, there were rituals of sacrifice that were required to be performed. So sin is one way that brings about, but also it could be done by accident. I mean, completely apart from your control, you might obtain a certain sickness. And certain sicknesses, according to the law, made you unclean. It might be incidental contact. Maybe you bump shoulders against someone and you didn't realize they were unclean. And after you bump shoulders, you're saying, unclean, unclean. Like, great, now I'm unclean. And uh, there were even times where you could move from one to the other on purpose, for good purpose. That is, sometimes there were things that were holy for a while, but they weren't supposed to be holy forever. And the great example of that is the Nazarites. Uh, turn with me to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers 6. Verse 1, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, that of his, uh, now that's not the same word for holiness, but it's a synonym. Uh, his set-apartness, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even of the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. So then there's more rules about what he's to do and what he's not to do, what happens if he becomes defiled. Let's say he touches a dead body, a corpse, and now he's defiled. There's a, rich, a special ritual he has to go through to regain because he's been in a holy status and now he's all the way down to unclean. So there's special system for him that's different than the average person to get back to be regarded as holy and it, it's a it's a long chapter but the, the chapter ends by saying uh it ends in verse 21 uh, it ends by saying there comes a point when this is done and he's no longer regarded as holy and he's just now regarded as clean and there's a kind of a ritual to go through that is a legitimate move that's a legitimate profaning <laughs> or uh, the fancy word would be he is desacralized. It also happens elsewhere in the law. Let's say you've got a golden pitcher inside the, the, the tabernacle and it's used for holy purposes, but it's time to retire it. There's a procedure by which this holy thing now becomes a common thing. Um, so uh, things that have lost their holiness... Uh, the word for that is they are profaned. Now, usually, things being profaned is bad. Can you read that? That's an A in there. 
Uh, normally that's bad. You know, like, you shall, uh, like the, the law for the Sabbath day, uh, six, you shall um, observe the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And elsewhere, the prophets and the, the law talks about those who don't keep that, that they profane the Sabbath day. That one of seven days is holy, the other are common. You don't treat the holy day like a common day. That's profaning the day. Um, things can lose their cleanness, though. When you're clean, or a thing is clean, and then it becomes unclean, the term that's used for that is polluted. Polluted. Or other words that are used are defiled. Um, now, there is a, a chart at the bottom of the page, and this comes from a commentary by Gordon Winham, and I'm not going to uh, draw it all on the board, but I'm going to use the boxes that I have up here uh, to uh, try to illustrate what happens. So, um, the chart there says, okay, let's over on the far left, you've got things that are holy. Let's say um, that you are... Uh, uh, you're a priest and you blow it. You really mess up. You've, be, you've become defiled. So uh, two things happen. First, you go from this category to this one. And in so doing, uh, you have been profaned. Or it might be you profane something else. But holy has become common. And then in addition to that, you've gone from clean to unclean. And this means you have been defiled. How do I get from here back to here? Well, the general uh, system is that there are rituals there to be observed, particularly, uh, not always, but often that means sacrifices. Uh, depending on what the issue is. It might be a small matter, and it might be as simple as, as washing your hands at the appointed time. But oftentimes there are more things. So to go from being clean, unclean, to clean, this is being cleansed in the Old Testament. To go from being clean to holy, this is being sanctified. It's a very different system than what we think of because we use cleansed and sanctified pretty much the same way. We use profane and defiled pretty much the same way. And you know what? It's good that we do because that's the way the New Testament is set up. <laughs> uh, this, the, the, this economy that we are under is different from this. Go to the last uh, page, and uh, I don't know if I have any room here on the board. I'll make a little room for myself. Um, one word that I think describes uh, a lot of this, it was, it's in the, the title of tonight's study, and that is complicated. <laughs> Isn't this complicated? Can you imagine? There's a little bit of stress. You know, you're getting ready for Passover, and you're trying to be fastidious not to accidentally get defiled because you, you don't want to lose out uh, on this. And there are festivals throughout the year. This system of categorizing and maintaining things was complicated and sometimes exhausting. Especially challenging were accidental situations where people through no fault of their own became 
unclean. And that's why the law has sacrifices for things that are called unintentional sins. Unintentional. Oh, look at that. I fit it. Unintentional sins. Uh, We won't read them just now, but Leviticus 4, Numbers 15. um, This is where you commit a sin, you're not even aware of it. Now, why did God do this? Why did he burden his people with this? I mean, in one sense, the law is a delight. I mean, Psalm 19 speaks about the the Lord gives uh, the law. The Lord is brings life and rejuvenates and does all these things. And yet, this part is challenging. Uh, there are at least two big reasons why I think the Lord did this. One of them is about, and I don't have this in the notes. One of them is about identification. That these are distinctive laws that sets Israel apart from everybody else. Uh, and you know what the biggest one was? The biggest holy versus common thing was was Sabbath day. There is no, we don't know of any other nation in the ancient world that practiced a seventh-day Sabbath. It made Israel unique amongst the nations. And likewise, a lot of these other rituals and observances and symbolic things had a way of setting them apart. But apart from that, I think there's an informational value. Informational, not only identification, but information. One purpose of this complicated way of living was to illustrate to every generation of Israelites how great was the problem of sin. That sin had permeated the entirety of the world. That sin was a barrier that came up between God and man. That you could sin, I mean a real moral sin, and not even be aware of it. We are, sin has so clouded our minds that we're not even aware how much sin we do. And I want you to turn with me to Psalm 19, a portion that I just referred to. Psalm 19. This is the portion where David celebrates how great is God's revelation, both his general revelation and creation. Heavens declare the glory of God. And the special revelation that comes in his word. And after rehearsing about how wonderful that revelation is, he immediately then feels convicted because God's revelation reveals to him that he is a weak and sinful man. Psalm 19, verse 11, Moreover, by them, that is your law, your commandments, your statutes, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? And the implied answer is, well, nobody, really. And, and notice then the request he makes, acquit me of hidden faults. Lord, I'm sure I have done things I'm not even aware of. Now, in terms of the, the symbolic law, yeah, I mean, that happened all the time. People violated, didn't even know they were violating it. And what that symbolized was the pervasiveness of sin, that humanity is so darkened by sin, they're not a, we are not aware how bad we are. And we need God's revelation to further expose it to us. Um, going back to the issue of keeping all of these ritual requirements, it was 
virtually impossible for an Israelite to never become defiled. I, th I think you could actually say it was impossible for the average person to avoid contamination completely. I mean, it, if you are a, a father, there was at one point where you were, at least one point, you were contaminated because after you have relationship with your wife, you were regarded as unclean. If you gave birth, unclean. Uh, you bump into some, an insect lands on you. A certain insect lands on you, you are unclean. The only exception was Jesus. You think about the number of times that Jesus interacts with unclean people over and over again. And, and the many, many times he's interacting with unclean spirits. Jesus perfectly kept the law, but there's no indication anywhere in the Gospels that at any point he becomes accidentally unclean while he is ministering uh, to other people. I mean, there are unclean people, people, like the woman who has been, remember the story of Matthew 5, the woman who's had that flow of blood for 12 years, and what does she do? What does she do? She sneaks up behind him and touches him. Now, the normal fastidious Jew would be, <coughs> do you realize what you just did? But her uncleanness doesn't transfer to Jesus. His cleanness transfers to her. He is, and this is something that happens again in the, in the Gospels, and it implies that he was the ultimate cleansing agent, that he himself never became defiled. And the coming of Jesus and his bringing, being the, as Paul says, he is the end of the law, he brought this system to an end. Um, and, uh, by the way, I should say that this system of clean, unclean, and holy and uh, common was only for the Jewish people. It was never commanded of the Gentiles. It was something that was intended to mark them apart as God's own people. It had a particular uh, start and end date. And Jesus is the end date. Gentile Christians... Uh, in fact, Christians, we, they, even if they're Jews, are not obligated to keep any of the cleanliness laws. They are not relevant to us. They are informational to us. They are part of our spiritual heritage. Um, you know, uh, we, we learn from it, and it informs you know, the, the system we operate under now. The, the Old Testament law is not our operating system. It's part of our heritage, our spiritual heritage, but it's not part of our defining documents. Uh, I'm going to be a technicalist here. You know, technically, we are not governed by the Declaration of Independence. It is foundational to our becoming a country. It is part of our heritage, but we are governed by the Constitution of 1789. That is, the that is our operating system. The Declaration of Independence is, is valuable and relevant and instructional, but it, is not, it doesn't define our system of government. Likewise, the Old Testament law is important and valid and instructional and part of our heritage, but it is not what governs us. We are governed by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, we, are, we relate to the Lord through the new covenant. And I want you to, as we close tonight, 
come with me to a few New Testament passages where Paul writes to Gentile Christians mostly and see how he uses these kinds of words in a different way from what we've been talking about tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the first one and I have a couple others that aren't in your handout. 1 Corinthians 6 Verses uh, 9, 10, and 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Washed and sanctified. They take on these things in, in relationship to the gospel, take on a new meaning. They are more equivalent than they were in the Old Testament. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, in Christian thinking, spiritual cleansing and spiritual holiness are on the same plane. These are Gentile Christians he's writing to. They don't, there's no rituals to be going through. We're talking about spiritual realities. And, and we'll look at one more together, Ephesians 5, verse 26. Ephesians 5. We'll back up to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." cleansing, sanctifying, all done to us by Christ. So uh, these things we've studied about tonight are really a shadow of greater things, of the, the, the work of spiritual cleansing and spiritual sanctifying that we all need that is accomplished by the Lord Jesus. Now, in saying that, it didn't mean that these things were unimportant in the days of the Old Testament. A, a believing Hebrew in the Old Testament would do their best by God's grace to keep every point of the law. And when they couldn't keep it, the law had a remedy for it. But it wasn't about getting to heaven. It wasn't about, uh, you know, standing before God and saying, why should I be allowed into heaven now that I've died? No, it Keeping the law was more about how could they properly relate to the God who dwelt at the tabernacle. These things were a shadow of a greater reality of how we sinful beings who have been defiled and shamed and disgraced by our sin, contaminated and polluted 
profaned. How is it that we could be welcomed before a holy God? And Jesus' blood has made the way that washes and sets us apart for him. So, Lord, we thank you tonight for the time to consider part of our Bible, uh, the development of thought in our Bible as it changes from the old to the new. And as we've thought about how in the Old Testament you could be, in one sense, one could be unholy and okay, we know that that does not work now in the way that we relate to you. You have called us, Lord, to walk in true holiness. You, in fact, have given us the holiness of Christ in terms of our standing before you, and you call us to live in accordance with our standing. So, our God, grow us in the grace. The same grace that saved us is the grace that grows us in Christ-likeness and living a more holy life day by day and living a life of cleansing and, and knowing that when we sin, when we fall short, there is the cleansing blood of Jesus to assure us that we are still his and that we might commune with him fully. So we offer up ourselves to you and our walk, our daily walk to you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.